0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 89. And today we're asking the question when is the process more important than the outcome? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven, I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. And following on from last episode where Drew and I discussed a paper from outside the safety field that we felt could provide us with useful insights about organisational life and particularly as it relates to safety, The paper that we will review today is also from outside the safety field, but it was instrumental, at least in my thinking, about the work that we were doing a couple of years ago on defining safety work versus the safety of work and safety clutter. And I'm sure that this paper, Drew, is referenced in both of those papers of ours as well as a few others. So, Drew, what does software project management have to do with safety management? And when did you first come across this paper? Because you introduced it to me.
1: David, I don't know what our listeners sort of imagine university academic life is like. I I think it's it's a lot more sort of office management than you might think. And a lot of our research is not done like sitting in an office trying to think deep thoughts. It's out in companies watching what's going on or interviewing people. But there's a small part of my life that involves sort of wandering into a professor's office and just having deep conversations. Um, And that's particularly with Dr. Rob Alexander at University of York. I mean, he's even got one of those big professor chairs that he swivels around and (laughs) you sort of sit and chat. And so he gives me a lot of these, he gives me homework the same way that I give my PhD students homework. And and so this is a paper that he gave me to read when I was talking about some of the background ideas that ended up eventually in our safety of work paper. And it's also a sort of strewn through the draft of a book which I've never published. I don't know if I'll ever get around to finishing off called False Assurance. But I was chatting with Rob about the ideas in this book, particularly about the way people use things like risk assessment and safety cases more to allay their own feelings of uncertainty and their own anxiety than as actual engineering techniques. But we use them as if they are engineering techniques. And so David gave me, sorry, Rob gave me this paper to read and so to to get to sort of understand why it's relevant to safety, just if you're reading the paper for yourself, every time you hear the phrase structured system analysis, just replace it with risk assessment or safety case. And I think this, this paper still makes exactly the same sense as it was originally written. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it references a bunch of other interesting stuff as well. So it's one of those papers you sort of read it and then you want to go to the reference list and read all that stuff as well to find out where we've still got all of these interesting ideas from because they're not all his own. He's gathered together a bunch of these ideas and put them together for this circumstance.
0: Yeah, exactly, Drew. And it's one of those papers that um, I remember reading for the first time going, oh, yeah, that's exactly what happens in safety. Oh, that's exactly what's happening in safety. And uh, and so it's a good one to get hold of. And I may as well mention now it's, it's quite easily available, open access. You just chuck the title into Google Scholar and, and you'll get um, you get it via academia. So, Drew, I know how much you love a good title of a paper, and um, but this paper be- goes beyond just having a good title um, and actually has a whole bunch of really cool subheadings involving lions and teddy bears, amongst other things. So let's, and I'm sure that's a little bit at least part of the reason why you like the paper so much. So do you want to introduce the paper for us? Okay. Uh, so the paper
1: is called The Fetish of Technique. Methodology as a Social Defense, which is a title jam-packed with interesting ideas just in the words of the title. It's published in a journal uh, called Information Systems Journal, which is one of those sort of hybrid interdisciplinary journals that's sort of somewhere between computer science and management, all about sort of the way in which electronic and information systems get used within organizations. So some of the papers are very sort of technically geeky. Some of the papers are very um, social sciencey, and one of the big themes, which is also a theme of the authors' sort of research career, is the sort of success and failure of information systems projects. When they go well, when they don't go well, and trying to explain why organisations get them into such big messes, such big messes with IT projects, it was published in 1996. The author David Westell is kind of interesting. David, you looked him up as well. Do you want anything you want to say about his career?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, single author paper and 25 years old, like you said, Drew. And David Westell is currently an emeritus professor. So, he's a retired professor in operations management and information systems at Nottingham University in the UK. He sort of um, had various phases of his career uh, researching sort of different aspects of social and organizational life, if you like, um, started as a cognitive neuroscientist, uh, really looking at brain activity and psychological processes. Then he started looking, I suppose, in the early to mid nineties, we had the, well, the early part of the dot-com kind of boom and and uh, lots of information technology and the emergence of the internet. So he started looking at technological innovation and collaboration within industry. And then he really, he was appointed professor at Salford University in 2000, just after this paper was, was published. And he sort of come full circle at the end of his career. He, he went back into neuroscience and social policy, and particularly looked at child protection, and sort of trying to merge a lot of what he learned over his career in both neuroscientist and and socio-technical systems to look at human factors design of safe systems for child protection and things like that. So lots of I just looked through Drew. I said, what else is what else has he published? Because because you know this is a great paper from our perspective, but but also one that's only been cited just over two hundred and fifty times, Drew. So not a very widely cited paper, but jam-packed full of really useful organisational lessons.
1: Yeah, one of those people who's written interesting stuff that goes a little bit undiscovered. So hopefully we can get a few more people reading and citing the paper by talking about it today.
0: Yeah, and so Drew, I want to start with sort of the premise for for the paper because... Um, Basically, the way that I summarise the premise is that there's lots of processes used in software development project management. So the research that we're going to be talking about today was that the structure of the paper was very similar to our paper on safety work versus the safety of work and safety clutter. It was this patterns identified through multiple sort of case study uh, observations of case study research within, in this case, four separate organisations that were all attempting to implement the same structured IT project management methodology. And this specific methodology was increasingly popular in the early 90s, and it was actually mandated for use on UK government information systems projects. And so these case studies involve sort of just observing and and interviewing people in these four organizations involved in in working to implement these systems over multiple years. And so the premise of the article is that, look, methodology may not actually drive outcomes. So these are these open questions that that Wastel had. Methodology may not be driving the outcomes that we're trying to get from the methodology. And why do we remain so committed to certain management processes in the absence of a sort of a you know, the type of outcomes that we're trying to achieve? And his central hypothesis in this paper was that we're so committed to these management processes because following these methodologies acts as a social defense. So a set of organizational rituals with the primary purpose, like you said in the introduction, Drew, of containing anxiety and uncertainty as opposed to necessarily uh, reliably generating outcomes.
1: David, I probably should take a little bit of a quick detour here because I know we do have some software development listeners who might have a few sort of assumptions about where the paper's going. So this paper was written in 1996, which predates the Agile Manifesto and the Agile software development movement. So there, there was a big interest in around 2000 and slightly afterwards about trying to fix a lot of the problems with software development because the methodology had become too heavyweight. So in other words, people were trying these really, really formal structured approaches to both software development and to project management. And we have things like your know, prints and prints too in sort of management, which are all about having very, very detailed planning processes very, very uh, structured timelines, Gantt charts, flow charts, milestones, gateways, ways of sort of keeping projects in check by having big methods. And there was a reaction to those approaches that said, look, this is just too top heavy. We're putting so much into management, not enough into actually just writing the software. So we need approaches that are more flexible, more streamlined, more able to just cope with varying user requirements, varying day-to-day get things written, get things out there, get them tested. But I think for the purpose of this paper, if you're thinking, you know, sure, I agree that processes are bad, that's why we have Agile. Agile itself fits exactly what they're talking about when they talk about methodology in this paper. Any process whether that process is a heavyweight or lightweight process still fits the same concerns, the same sort of interesting questions. And so this paper, I think, even though it was written in 1996, could also explain why agile wasn't as perfect a solution as people thought it was going to be. And why people trying to fix the methods by coming up with new, better, lightweight methods ran into exactly the same problems. And I think this paper can explain that.
0: Yeah, it's a good summary, Drew. Um, and I want to start with a quote from the abstract because, uh, we read probably a lot more abstracts than we do papers. And so, you know, authors who put careful consideration into forming their abstract sort of makes you want to read it. So I thought, Drew, we'd just sort of read the last couple of sentences of the abstract. Do you want to start with that quote or would you like me to read that out?
1: No, absolutely, David. I was I was hoping we were going to create the abstract because I really like just the... Some people, their abstracts are just copied from the paper, but other people like really craft their abstracts to tell the story of the paper. So the grandiose illusion of an all-powerful method allows practitioners to deny their feelings of impotence in the face of the daunting technical and political challenges of systems development. By withdrawing into this fantasy world, the learning processes that are critical to the success of systems development are jeopardized. Methodology, whilst masquerading as the epitome of rationality, May thus operate as an irrational ritual, the enactment of which provides designers with a feeling of security and efficiency at the expense of real engagement with the task at hand.
0: I think you may have even lifted and direct quoted that in papers before as well. I think that's get your hands on the paper and even just get your hands on the abstract and um, read those last couple of sentences and reflect on those in relation to safety management in in your organisation and and your industry and your country. And then you know that you'll you'll sort of see what's fueled a lot of the work that we've done on safety work and safety clutter. So Drew, the paper starts with a long case study and it's actually titled A Cautionary Tale. So a shout out to another great podcast, Cautionary Tales by uh, Tim Hartford, but A Cautionary Tale, and it just tells the story of one of the four case studies. And I just might run through this quickly, Drew, in in sort of point form, but this sort of sets up the framing for the rest of the paper. And so in the early nineties, there was a very successful company. It relied heavily on IT systems for inventory management, marketing, distribution, sales, finance other organizational functions. The company became increasingly concerned with the growing size of the central IT team and a general frustration at long lead times for new set software. Uh, the feeling across management was, we've got all these IT people, yet we're not getting IT software that's functional and quick into our organization. And the problem was uh, that 80% of the time, the internal IT team was spending maintaining these old outdated legacy systems. And there was a sort of lack of user orientation. And so, The organization did what organizations do, engage consultants to help them develop a new strategy. And this new strategy recommended this structured software development methodology, which was increasingly popular at the time. Uh, The organization did a pilot project, sent all 60 IT staff on a two week training course. And there was lots of early problems with the implementation. The processes were complicated. They were difficult to follow, but there was a lot of organizational attention to the project, you know, steering committees, management oversight, So there was a big focus in the IT teams on getting the documentation and all of the diagrams right and making things were all done in the correct order. Now, further problems developed, Uh, projects were slowed down even more by following the methodology and people were seen to be following the methodology in a blind and and somewhat mechanical way. And so people were investing even more time in the diagrams and the presentations than the actual project work. And in some people's minds had, the teams, the project teams had lost sight of this, what the system that they're actually designing was was to be used for in the organization.
1: David, can I jump in for a moment? Because there's a particular part of this process that I just love the paradox or revenge effect. So w- one of the problems that spurred the introduction of the methodology was that there was this feeling that the IT department was not responsive to users, And so all of these new systems were being developed without thinking about how people were actually going to be using them, without engaging with the users, about thinking about how the existing processes worked. And so this is something the new method was going to solve. It was like a method structured around user engagement. But the biggest thing that people were complaining about with this new process was just how mechanized the interaction between the developers and the users had become that the, de- the developers were using the process as a way to avoid engaging with users. Instead of talking to them, they were sending them diagrams for review. And so the users then had to learn how to interpret these user engagement diagrams and put comments on them, which, of course, they didn't have time to do. So people in other departments had sort of like specially allocated people to work with the software team. And so, you know, it became your job to now be liaison to the software team between the users and the software team. And those people in the liaison roles didn't understand either what the users or the software people were doing. Um, and the software people were getting fed up with these pseudo users. And still, we weren't actually getting stuff that was fit for use by you know, the users.
0: Yeah, Drew, it's a great it's a great point. So this idea that we're trying to solve a process of engaging with people by creating administrative processes and, and like you said, sending things out for consultation and sign off. So on surface, it looked like a whole lot more engagement because all these requirements were signed off, all these designs were signed off, all these emails back and forward were occurring, but uh, users felt that the politics of schedule and and pressure were just sort of forcing them to sign things off to keep projects going on time and not be holding things up. So interestingly, Drew, after a lot of frustration and challenge in the year after the the late implementation of this process in this case study organisation, Two further projects were implemented using the process in inverted commas and were successful but it's interesting that on observation and and review that these projects were actually only paying lip service to the methodology and were actually uh implementing an entirely different more engaging user focused approach and just sort of ticking the boxes on the process on on the way through and interestingly within 2 years the process was completely abandoned and the head of information technology for that organization was replaced and a new consulting engagement was undertaken and a new approach was was designed, and we don't know the story of that of that new approach.
1: One more detail I just want to throw in, David, which just rang so true to me from work in large organizations. So th- this was a multi-year project. It's running six months late. The project still hasn't finished, and the organization decides to conduct a review of the process. <laughs> So as well as trying to finish the project, everyone is involved in a review of the process used to deliver the project. And of course, what everyone's saying is, of course, stuff hasn't been written yet, because the whole point of this process is not to get straight into writing the code. It's to properly understand the requirements first and to make sure that we've got things structured up front. So everyone's complaining that they're not writing code and everyone's defending the process by saying that's the whole point is to delay writing code until you've got things right instead of just jumping in, which is what we always did before. And so everyone is viewing the success and value of the process, basically based on their prior assumptions about whether they like the approach that the process is following or not. And it was pretty, I think it's pretty clear reading between the lines that this like implementation review was designed to kill the new process because people hated it so much. Um, It was just like sabotage the project midway and never give it a chance to succeed. Possibly it deserved it, but... (laughs)
0: Going back to last week's paper on garbage can model of organizational choice, it was the review created an organizational choice opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the first main section, I suppose, the first main part of the sort of the theory building section was called is called methodology, the lionization of technique. And I think Drew, we talk in safety sometimes about weaponizing safety management processes and tools, and and this is really what this section talks about. And it starts with this talking about there's this general sort of belief today in organizations. And when I say today, I mean, I'm talking 25 years ago, but I still think a lot of what's said in this paper is is very relevant um, today, is that this great belief in the power of methodology, especially in software development, and I'd argue in in safety as well. And I mean, hey, we have endless safety work in in our organizations and industries. And for every aspect of software development, there lurks a cunningly devised implement or tool of some kind that a practitioner can, can use and follow. And there's this belief in the magical qualities of methodology. Drew is a chimera. I didn't even know what that word meant. I had to Google it. But apparently it, it means a thing that which is hoped for but is illusionary or impossible to achieve. So, you know, a methodology can probably never give us re- repeatably exactly what we're after.
1: This idea of like the magical powers of method just falls right into... A couple of real world things that I've run into a few times. The first one is like just doing risk assessment. We've got this like real need for people to understand the risks of work that they're about to do. And we're so frustrated that people don't reliably do that. So it would just be fantastic if there was a process that we could give people that would ensure that they always properly appreciate the risk. But there is no such process (laughs) There are plenty of people willing to, like, invent new variations on it. And so we have this proliferation of solutions. But the mere, the mere fact that we have so many solutions to that problem suggests that none of the individual solutions actually solve it. But we've just got such a desire. And the, the other similar thing, I think, is in research, that people want to know how to, like, turn the handle and do research on something that fundamentally just requires you to be innovative and to think really hard and to come up with new ideas and you see that even in things like literature reviews people want a formula for doing a literature review that will let them know that they've done it correctly and let them just follow the process and do it whereas in fact you know doing it well just requires this much more uncertain process of never knowing if what you're currently reading is relevant or not and never knowing if you complete and never knowing if there's another paper out there that maybe you should have read should have cited
0: yeah i i think Sure. I think, and, and in, I'm going to keep my powder dry a bit on take fives. I want to use that later in the, in this episode as an example when we actually get a few more ideas out of this, out of this paper, because I think they all come together nicely uh, with that example. And there's a quote right here in this section that says, real problems require engagement with the task at hand. Turning to methodology can be an elaborate way of avoiding problems and not solving them. It's almost like saying, you know, if we want to, if we want to understand and improve the safety of work as done, it requires real engagement with work as done. There's no abstract safety work process that we can use or follow or apply to actually solve that, that problem. And so it goes on, I suppose, a little bit like in our manifesto paper on reality-based safety science, we talked about in episode 20. The question is kind of like, where's the evidence that all these methodologies that we rely and depend and believe so heavily in our organization are, actually have any efficacy in, in doing what we want them to do? And uh, Wastel calls out this sort of large lack of empirical evidence around the structured methods that organisations use and conclude that they seem to have more qualities of religious convictions than scientific truths. However, practitioners report, I suppose the research that uh, Wastel does refer to, says that practitioners report very favourable attitudes to methodology. So, you know, safety people are strong advocates of safety management systems, IT. Teams are strong advocates of agile project management methodologies. And so there's this uh, over there's this unanswered question in this paper. Well, I suppose Wastel answers it in his own way, but this is also a big unanswered question that's, you know, why do practitioners have such belief in these methodologies? And I guess he does answer in the next couple of sections, Drew.
1: One thing he does point out is the hypocrisy that these methods themselves are designed to look and sound scientific. And so it's really weird that the technique demands that you have, like, process to follow. But the development and implementation of the technique doesn't follow an evidence-based process. And he doesn't call out any of his colleagues in the software engineering or IT at university. But I think you could very well do that in that very often people... They're supposed to be academics, they're supposed to be scientifically minded, and they're producing these things that look scientific but they're not themselves following a scientific process of test and evaluation that the things actually do what they say on the tin. And we see the exact same thing in safety, that we have these methods that look rigorous, but no one's applied rigor to developing and testing the method itself. Um, I think a great example there is behavioral safety, which is designed to look and sound and feel scientific. And that's why it's so attractive, but no one has done the science around testing behavioral safety, whether it works
0: yeah, I think there's a very early episode we did on behavioural safety, might even be one episode one or thereabouts. And then I think in the mid 50s we did an episode on fads and fashions in in management science, in management practice. And so I think there's a few episodes in the back catalogue that can kind of talk about talk about this organisational belief in in some of these methods and what drives that. In fact,
1: at one stage they called it scientific management. People like thinking that they're being scientific. People just don't like actually being scientific. <laughs>
0: sometimes So, so anyway in this case study in this paper um there's a quote that says by march by march we had been doing this for nearly 2 months i couldn't see how it was helping us in any way but the manager kept reassuring us that it was he said we should all trust the methodology and then it would all work out in the end and of course it didn't and i and as well, I'm talking about the effort of implementing processes is enormous in organization you know it often involves training hundreds of staff and in this paper only one of the four companies that were that reviewed was still using this methodology two years after its implementation. So of all of that effort in in reorganizing and upskilling and retooling and defining business processes and, and that that's a huge sunk cost in something that never did what it was promised to do. And so I think Drew, that leads to the next question in the paper about, you know, why do companies continue to invest so heavily in these processes when there's little little evidence of them working? And Drew, I was going to turn to sort of where Wastel proposes the answer. Are you ready to do that yet?
1: Absolutely. So we're talking about, you know,
0: why are people not
1: scientific? So let's turn to psychoanalysis as a way of... <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we did. And I mean, this is where I suppose Wastel had the opportunity of being a cognitive neuroscientist and understanding psychoanalytic theory. And he sort of lent on this idea of social defense. And he proposed that in relation to to this issue, that methodology far from being a rational tool to facilitate systems development, in practice often functions as an elaborate device for avoiding the painful challenges posed by information systems projects. So sort of saying that if we've got a method and if we can align in the method and if we can believe in the method, uh, then it kind of stops us worrying about just how difficult and complex and uncertain this project actually is. So, so David, I I think
1: just before we go further, we're using a lot of examples out of safety, but it's probably worth just saying, you know, what is the actual painful challenge for this organization in the case study? And, And I think one of the sort of like key things to carry through here is that we've got a genuine problem that it's very hard for a large IT development organization to engage effectively with the people who are using its products even when they're inside the same umbrella organization. They don't speak the same language. They've got different interests. They've got different concerns. The organization's too big for every developer to go and spend time actually working with the users. And the users are inconsistent. The users don't want all the same things. The users complain about different things. One user says do one thing, and then the next week someone else says another thing. So this is a genuine painful difficulty and uncertainty faced by trying to develop a software product. Is, you know, users' requirements are inconsistent, they are changeable, they are hard to discover. And so we would love our process to be able to formalize that to get us a way of getting those user requirements properly understood, locked in, and explained in a language which makes sense to the software developers so they can just go away and develop. That's, you know, ultimately what the goal is, that's what the desire is, that's what the kimmer is, is this. Now the question is, why do we think that given this complexity, given this difficulty, why do we think that the process is going to fix that?
0: Andrew, I assume that that carefully described problem that this organisation in the case study was facing is intentionally very aligned to the challenge that safety practitioners face with frontline workers who are exposed to the real risks with the work that they perform every day. And they're constantly changing requirements and the difficulty in not being able to talk to everyone in the organisation and the different languages that frontline people and safety practitioners discuss. So I assume that was a carefully considered description of that case study.
1: (laughs) David, it wasn't actually, but I I think that's just a universal about the sources of uncertainty in organisations is that that is one of the big things that everyone's anxious about, whether it's safety or management or HR, is just how unknowable frontline work is and how inaccessible it is to people who need to design big systems and big products to support that frontline work. It is a genuinely hard problem that all organisations face, even if you're not in safety.
0: And the way that we turn to it even now, a lot of times in our organisation is the same way that it was, I suppose, seen to fail in these case studies, which is send out a document that's 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 finalised to the, to the user group, give them a week to review it, and then sign it off and tell you that they've got no problems with it, and then keep moving forward, is a little bit of how we approach safety management systems in some organisations still today so drew sort of this this section and this is the this is the main section i or one, i suppose the important section of the paper this methodology is a social defense and professor sort of said that software development is far from a deterministic engineering process and i was maybe just say every every where we go through here i think where we say software development or information systems I, I think it'd be fair to reflect on that if you're a listener that's interested in safety which i assume most people are and just substitute that for for safety management
1: I think it's worth not like drawing this binary between deterministic engineering processes and not. Uh, because the work that they're drawing on is basically that there's a whole bunch of different metaphors you can apply. And none of those metaphors are perfect, they all give you a bit of insight. And so one of the metaphors you can apply to software development or safety is as an engineering process. It's like a machine that you need to design and run. Which doesn't. Ex- it can explain some aspects of it, it's a useful metaphor sometimes. And certainly when we look at things like uh, stamp and feedback loops and hierarchical control processes, that is a useful way of looking at it. But there are lots of other metaphors you can deploy. <laughs> I love the fact that he calls out the journey metaphor, which we use all the time in safety. Uh, also, he talks about warfare metaphors. You know, it's all about, about conflict. A zoo metaphor, a family metaphor, a game metaphor. Um, and he's all drawing on another paper, which is talking about organizations based on using all of these different metaphors to look at what's going on. And his theory, okay, let's add in one extra metaphor, which is the metaphor of a psychic prison.
0: So, Arthur Morgan in the mid eighties referred to organizations as a psychic prison. And I guess this is the early exploration of the challenges of psychological safety within an organization and um, what's acceptable and not acceptable. And, And there's a quote in here that says, many aspects of group organization and group dynamics need to be seen first and foremost as an elaborate system of social defenses erected to contain anxiety. Their apparent rationality and task orientation is a facade, a rationalization. So saying sort of many, many processes and methods and, and interactions in our organization are performative rather than instrumental.
1: Yeah I I think that idea of an elaborate system of social defenses erected to contain anxiety works for everything from performance reviews to trying to talk to the boss at the Christmas party. <laughs> yeah,
0: Andrew, I think I mean, you yeah, know, leadership visits, behavioral behavioral observations, audits, incident investigations, there's there's lots of things that we do in safety that our our listeners can reflect on and 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 read through this paper as as we've been able to. And so by by social defence, another author Menzies Lith, means a persistent institutionalised pattern of social activity that's primarily served to reduce feelings of anxiety and provide a feeling of warmth and security. Andrew, we've we've uh, cited Eric Holnagel in two thousand and fifteen in our safety work versus the safety of work paper that said organisations need to both feel safe and be safe. And however, often the former gets in the way of the latter. And I think that's exactly what Wastel's trying to bring into these. Organizational dynamics from psychoanalytic theory here to say that the feeling of safety is the primary concern of people within organizations, not necessarily the being safe.
1: Uh, yes. I mean, we're stuck here with the multiple meanings of the word safe here. You know, I think Holnagel is actually using both feel safe and be safe in the same meaning, whereas the sort of like social defense, it's not just, it's not about like feeling free from accident. It's feeling free from social criticism. Uh, We've been talking about this in the lab for the last couple of years, trying to sort of like get the language right here, because a lot of organizations, they use the idea of like legal defense, almost like a metaphor. And you'll see people doing safety activities and they say, oh, this is so that we don't get sued. Or so this is so we don't get evidence. And it doesn't make sense as a legal defense. You know, People do things which are irrational from a legal point of view. That they say is for legal reasons and i think that that sort of like the legal is a proxy it's not that they actually fear being prosecuted or actually fear being sued they fear something more nebulous which is like doing the wrong thing and and it's that sort of like feeling of safety the feeling that you're doing the right thing the feeling that you're not mismanaging things that you're doing things appropriately that's what people are trying to manage
0: yeah okay that's a great point because i have this summary in here that and maybe it's the the cynic in me at times said that there's a very locally ration, there's a very locally rational priority for people in organisations to feel like they're managing well. Maybe more of more primary importance to them and their own anxiety and their own personal security than actually to be waiting for their management outcomes to to give them the sense of whether they are or are not managing.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's exactly right. You know, even if there are no negative outcomes. You, there is no like rational fear of your manager criticizing you or rational fear of being caught or rational fear of something going wrong. You can still feel anxious about whether you're doing things properly or appropriately.
0: So there's this there's lovely sentences in this in this paper and and, and so we'll just sort of share another one here that bureaucracy and talks sort of goes in to say that then because of these reasons, these methodologies become, you know, really elaborate, really um, really large bureaucracies. And bureaucracy is the epitome of a rational organization. Uh, is all too often a highly sophisticated social defense. Bureaucratic systems, while parading as efficient procedures, actually waste resources. Excessive paper helps contain the anxiety of face-to-face communication. Excessive checking and monitoring reduces the anxiety of making difficult decisions by diffusing accountability. I'm doing this because the audit's doing this, or I'm okay because the audit said I'm okay, or I'm okay because I've got all of these procedures in the organization, or I've got these processes so I don't need to actually talk to, to my people. I guess that's what this is.
1: Yeah, this wasn't just me deciding something. This was approved by multiple people through a system of checks and balances. Therefore, it was a good decision.
0: And I guess why uh, there's a few papers that seem like in a bit of a series. There's a 1993 paper, Drew, and there's also a. And this is a 96 paper, and there's also a 1999 paper where uh, Wastel actually provides uh, his own process for how software um, systems sort of should be managed inside organisations. And in the 1993 paper, they're arguing that systems development is a really intensely stressful process. There's exacting technical and political pressures on practitioners. It sets up this chain of anxiety amongst actors. And it's argued that this anxiety chain plays a critical role in shaping the dynamics of the development process. So this is this idea that lots of pressure on these IT projects at the time, lots of uncertainty around them, Uh, lots of jobs and and reputations on the line, Uh, lots of push to follow a process so that the process can be blamed um, rather than necessarily the people.
1: David, he doesn't say this directly in the paper, but I was wondering with the analogy with safety, whether what they have in common is these really long feedback loops. So if this project is going to take two years to develop, then ultimately at the end of the project, it is going to be success or failure and that's stressful. But what's most stressful is that that is two years away. How do you know what you're doing now is safe? Or how do you know what you're doing now is appropriate? Or how do you know now that you're developing a good system and it's not going to be a waste of time? You can't use feedback against the overall result, but you can use feedback against, oh, I'm following the process correctly now. And you you see that with safety people in their resumes. You, You can't say, I developed a system and for 10 years it didn't kill anyone. You can say oh, I developed a system and it achieved regulatory approval. <laughs> you know, I followed the process. The process was successful in that much tighter feedback
0: loop. And I think it's those proxy measures, Drew, that um, you, I think you're exactly right. And, and I think in safety, because it is so uncertain, the outcome. You know, How do we know that, I mean, do we even know how to present and prevent the next disaster? Do we know where the next fatality is going to occur? So it's very rational for people to go, well, I don't know. If if I can achieve these these injury targets, I don't know if I'm going to have a fatality or not. But if I've done all these leadership visits, all these audits, I've got all these procedures, I've got all these meetings and all this training and all these safety people, and I've done all this time, then no matter what the outcome is, I'll be seen to have been doing the right things. And whether that's a conscious or an unconscious or view, you know, I think that's all that's all part of it. The activity itself becomes a a proxy for good management in the absence of actually knowing what the outcome is going to be.
1: It's one of the things we see with PhD students as well. David, you had a fairly, I think, stress-free PhD process, but I don't know how much you experienced, just how uncertain it is whether you are on track or doing the right thing. You know, it's one of the most common questions PhD students ask is just, am I doing okay? (laughs) And that's one of the reasons why we have things like milestones is I can't promise you that you know, two months in you're on track for, in three years you're going to produce a good PhD and it's going to pass. But I can tell you that your next milestone is your early candidature milestone, and yes, you are following the right process and producing the right things that you will make it through that milestone. So the existence of a methodology gives us all of these proxy things that we can use to measure against. Um, in fact, Rastel is going to talk a bit about psychologically how to think about these
0: proxy things. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the PhD is a little bit like safety in organizations, which is you're told that you need to submit something in four to eight years time and it needs to be, you know, deliver an outcome. And there's like two little stepping stones on the way, which are again also more ritual probably than instrumental in your progress. So it is very much one of these very organic processes that um how do you know you're doing enough, how you know you're doing it well is 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 really hard. So I think if we go to social defense, um West sort of pulls out from the psychoanalytic theory and said, look, there's three, the literature points are three forms of social defence against anxiety. You've got this basic assumption behaviour, this covert coalition or this organisational ritual. And Drew, I wasn't going to go too much into the first bit, but this basic assumption in behaviour is like fight or flight, like a stimulus response thing. You can have a social defence by either taking something on or running away from it. And the covert coalition is just like, well, I'm going to create a social defence by creating this little kind of hidden mafia inside the organisation that I know someone will protect me. It's like family. Um, That will be my my social defence. And then the third one, which is the focus of this paper, is this organisational ritual. Do you want to talk any more about the other two or just stick with the paper?
1: No, I I think both of them are really interesting. And if you're reading the paper, I'd recommend take a little bit of time to think about them and apply them. Um, I recognise elements of those both in my own work and even in people's responses to the methodology going wrong, you see some of those other social defences coming into play. You know, methodology is just one way of creating a social defence. There's also blaming other people, which is the covert coalition. And that's what people do when the methodology fails. But organisational ritual, I think, is the main focus. So let's just keep following that stream.
0: Yeah, and I think this also we need to also get remember the timing of, of these papers. So this is before the whole body of literature on institutional logics as well. So some of these ideas around organizational ritual have been you know expanded quite significantly in in safety science in, in the institutional logics um, space. we did an episode, I think might have been mid30s episode on institutional logics. So this original work that was sort of looked at was it involved nurses and this idea about nurse or this sort of observation of nurses objectifying patients. And which was some a seemingly kind of heartless and impersonal execution execution of nursing protocol. So we're like, oh, can you go and check on the leg in bed number 10 rather than kind of the the patient, the patient's name? And the research concluded that the psychodynamics of this approach really enabled nurses to deal with the intolerable anxiety of just working with sick and terminally ill people sort of day in, day out. So there was these linked mental processes, you know, categorized as splitting projection and, and introspection. So without going into any more detail, I suppose, Drew, Wastel sort of lifted this whole psychoanalytic category of social defence and sort of dropped him in on the things that, the patterns that he was observing in these IT project teams.
1: Yes, so so for the nurses, it was things like, I can't stop the patient being in pain, but I can appropriately follow the pain management protocol. And that makes me feel okay about doing my job. And then for the IT teams, it's I can't actually give the users what they want. (laughs) that I can follow the user consultation process. So it turns from something that's just impossible and unachievable, but still anxiety inducing and worrying. You know, nurses don't like seeing people in pain. Software people don't actually like, you know, giving users stuff that the users hate. But you can't do anything about that. You can do something about making sure that you've properly followed the process.
0: And I think through how that sort of applied um, or was sort of talked about in in those three areas and, and the IT projects was sort of splitting, which is the responsibility for doing this is not part of me. So it's not like a, it's a it's not a my decision projection, which is, again, if something is is fails, it's like the methodology is responsible Um and interjection, which is that the methodology says that things must be done in this way. So it was sort of all about these sort of separating the individual from the responsibility for the way that things were done, but also the outcomes of the ways that those things were done.
1: Yeah, don't, don't yell at me for sending you three emails. The process tells me I'm supposed to send
0: you emails at this particular point in time. And we get it sometimes in safety inductions. You'll get it when you get a really kind of you get a site manager and you'll get up to site and he goes, "Ah, oh, I need a few moments of your time." The the management system requires me to actually take you through the safety induction. Um, I'm sorry, it, you know that's the sort of introduction. Okay, well, this is going to be a compelling introduction to safety at the site. So, Drew, another another section now. So, let's. let's um, are we ready to? We'll move on because. We've got yes, another, absolutely. We've got another chunk and I think we're going to run a bit short of time, so we might speed up a little bit. But the heading of this section is the psychodynamics of learning, teddy bears and transitional objects. So Drew, do you want to get us started with this transitional objects and teddy bears? Okay, so, so let me
1: just, right, for the sake of time, when you're growing up, you're attached to your parents. You can't stay attached to your parents forever. You've got to detach and become independent. A transitional object is something that you use in between being attached to your parent and being independent, like a teddy bear. You become attached to the teddy bear instead of the parent. That lets you be a bit more independent. Eventually, you get rid of the teddy bear. The trouble is you can get stuck, and you can find yourselves 25 years old still clinging onto your teddy bear. The transitional object has become permanent. And that's one way of looking at methods. David, I think we could just jump straight into talking about take fives now.
0: So that's us that, true. So so maybe the way that I sort of give this example is to say that there's a belief that if a person does a pre-task hazard identification planning activity, then their reliability and safety and, and efficiency of that task is improved. So if I go, okay, I need to change this light bulb, what do I need? I need a light bulb, I need a ladder. Where am I going to position the ladder? How am I going to carry the light bulb up it? What am I going to do with the old one? And, and so the idea that if I can, what are the hazards? How am I going to solve all of this? So there's no question in sport and work and kind of any task that some sort of mental rehearsal process or some sort of planning process can improve safety and task performance. And so then we go, okay, well, we want our people to do this before they do every task, but we're not confident that people are capable of doing it. So we give them a checklist. So we don't know if you know what all the hazards are. We don't know if you know how to do a good planning process. So here's the checklist. And then we have people do the checklist for 10 or 15 or 20 years and wonder why they're treating it as a compliance activity. So Drew, that's my starting point for this example. Do you want to step off from there?
1: Yeah, so so the thing that we're forcing people to do is supposed to be a transitional object. It's supposed to be a framework that takes them from not mentally rehearsing to mentally rehearsing. But it's possible to get stuck on the transitional object. And when you do it, often stops filling its purpose so you know if you're 25 years old and still carrying your teddy bear it hasn't served its purpose of giving you this full independence it's just substituted one type of dependence for another and the same thing with the risk assessment framework if you're still using the framework then that's almost like evidence that you never actually managed to achieve the purpose which was to just start spontaneously independently thinking through the task before you do it. And it particularly, you can have, and I'm not sure how, I honestly don't know whether this is true of teddy bears or not, but you can have transitional objects that don't serve any of the purpose they're leading you to. So you can be doing that framework, you can be using the transitional object and getting none of the risk assessment, getting none of the mental rehearsal. It's just become totally detached. The transitional objects become split from the thing it was supposed to be helping you from in the first
0: place. And I think through that, to be really concrete with, with that example, I think we, we see that in lots of safety processes where we actually confuse, is the safety process designed to build capability in people and and expertise and competence in them undertaking these processes? Or is the safety process itself designed to produce the outcome? And processes can't produce the outcome. I think that's the point here. The point here is that, that it becomes, it's either a skill building activity or it's a compliance activity. And. This, I think I sort of link back into some of Rasmussen's work on, on rule-based and um, skill-based work. And so when when we do have novice workers and new workers, then you know, being rule-based and having processes and handrails and checklists is can be useful. But our goal there should be capability building. Our goal there shouldn't be about creating outcomes. Once we've got that capability, then the question becomes, you know, can we remove you know, we, oh, not can we, we should remove the process. I know some sites, Drew, I don't know how you feel about this, but some sites based on my advice or, or, or maybe just my musings have now only require the written take fives to be done for people for their first six months on that site. And after that, they can choose whether or not they want to use the form or not. And just experimenting with whether that creates an intense focus on capability building for the first six months and then um, relying on, you know, expertise and mental processes for people from there on
1: david i probably shouldn't mention at this point that yop uh, and i now have a deadline for our take five paper okay it's due, it's due in a couple of weeks so this episode recording is well timed and one of the difficulties that we i don't think we've got a good solution in the paper yet but we do point out the problem is that this social defense thing is real so you Getting people to use it for the first six months as a learning tool solves that problem of the transitional object. But one of the problems is that there is this need for a social defense around risk assessment. And if you take away the take fives, yes, you've taken away something which is not achieving anything for safety, but it is absolutely helping people with that organizational ritual and social defense. And that is a real genuine psychological safety need, even if it doesn't do anything for uh, physical operational safety.
0: So I think I think it's worth having a having either an answer for or a way of removing the need for that social defense to be there, you know, at those very proximal work processes. So Drew, do you want to say any more about we'll we'll, we'll do I, I promise you listeners, I will keep on Drew's case until that paper's published and we will get that take five episode done. Um the very first recording session after it is is published. But Drew, is there anything more you want to say about that before we start to work towards wrapping up?
1: No, I, I think the, the paper then moves on to quoting one of my least favourite scholars of research methods, but he's very, very quotable. Um, so th- this is Paul Feyerabend. People who are deep into social science will love him. People who are much more like um, their poppery and structured research methods will hate him. But um, yeah, so this is a quote from the paper, and then there's a quote from Feyerabend. The, from the paper, he says, all stories have good and bad guys, heroes and villains, Methodology is clearly the villain of this piece. The aim, however, is not to prove that methodology is always bad, but rather to argue it has the potential to operate malignantly and to discuss how this corrosive influence is exerted in terms of cognitive processes and organisational dynamics. The author admits to some partisanship and readily acknowledges that his position is, on the whole, anti-method.
0: So I guess then, yeah, okay, so anti-method. So Paul... Farabend says, you know... Uh, Sorry, I should probably just
1: quickly before you do the quote. Paul Farabend's book is called Against Method.
0: Okay, well, there you go, Against Method, and it says, it is clear that the idea of fixed method rests on a too naïve a view of man, or of people and their surroundings and their social surroundings. To those who look at the rich material provided by history, it will become clear that there is only one principle that can be defended under all circumstances and in all stages of human development. It is the principle, anything goes. And it's interesting, Drew, that there's also a quote in this paper that we haven't said from 1829, this early industrial revolution, that says, "Well, that's the end of uh, of people getting to make decisions in organisations. There's a tool and a technology and a procedure for everything." And that was like 100 years, almost 100 years before scientific management. So this um, this methodology is a is a long time burned into our organisational psyche. So, Drew, takeaways. Takeaways. I've dropped a couple of incomplete conclusions here. Do you want to kick us off with some things that you think might be might be some takeaways?
1: Okay. okay. I I think it's important to start with the non-takeaway takeaway, takeaway, which is that it's really easy in this work, which is which critically analyzes methodology and bureaucracy to come away with an anti-method, anti-bureaucratic attitude. And we certainly know and have done episodes about authors who use this sort of work as ammunition in their war against safety bureaucracy. And that's the, the reason why I was interested in the Safety Clutter paper, and the reason why I like this work, is I see this sort of critical analysis as really very sympathetic to organizational ritual. It exists, it, it's not, it doesn't exist for the reason we think it exists, but it exists for really good, really interesting reasons. This is not a rant against software development methods. This is an explanation for why we have software development methods and why people like them so much, even though they don't work. Um, And so I think if we want to make good use of this, then we need to crusade against dysfunctional methods and dysfunctional things in organizations using this insight, using the understanding that people don't follow the method because it works. So telling them why you're following the method, it doesn't work, isn't going to help. You've got to understand that people follow the method because it reduces their anxiety. So if you want to fix the method, you want to improve the method, you've got to do it sympathetic to that anxiety. And I think this is where we were going with the take five is you can't just rip out take fives because they're nonsense. You know, yes, they are nonsense. but You can't just rip them out. It doesn't work. They'll just come back people will use other forms to write down that same amount of information you've got to go into removing them sympathetic to this social defense role that they play
0: yeah I agree drew I think it's very practical takeaway that you know the complexity of our organizations and the dynamics and the decision-making processes and yeah if, if a person if, if if your organization isn't psychologically safe for people to be independent then they'll find another they'll find another teddy bear uh, they'll keep finding more teddy bears every time you take one away I think that's what this paper this paper says so understanding the connection between your your methods and your outcomes and psychological safety. And, And one way of testing this is just to ask a few operational managers in the business, what they really think of things like incident investigation and audit and risk assessment. So their organisational narrative will be, oh, it was really great to have the auditors in. They they, they told me some things about my, my business that I didn't know. They gave me some really meaningful things. That was a great program. That'll be the narrative the operations managers tell the senior management and the board. And see if they tell you a different, oh, well, I suppose it's a good test of your relationship with them. See if they tell you a different story, ask them, you know what, do you really think we learned anything from those audits? Do you really think we improve anything? And then you can really sit back and go, okay. So again, like Drew said, these things are serving a purpose, but it's not creating safety, safety off work outcomes in my business.
1: David, I've got to tell you another story, but I promise you that this is going towards a takeaway. So all of my kids have had transitional objects. And one of the ones that two of them had in common was a blanket. So you know, uh, I won't tell you which kids. I've got three, so we'll leave it a little bit anonymous. But, but two of my kids had blankie. And we learned from the first one just how dangerous it is to have a kid reliant on a blanket. <laughs> because what if you lose the blanket? What if you forget the blanket? What if the blanket's not available? What if it's somewhere that's embarrassing for an 18-year-old to have a blanket? So the solution we came up with was microblankie. The idea is that while the kid is still using the blanket as a transitional object to introduce a couple of very similar but much more lightweight objects that serve the same purpose and can be substituted and train the kid to substitute in and out blankie for microblankie. And I think that that works for organizations as well. That The problem with these processes is not that they exist. The problem is that they are so cumbersome and they're taking the time and attention and effort away from what we're actually trying to achieve by them. If we could satisfy the social defense with something which is just easier, is less work, is less frustration, and in the understanding that it's only there for a social defense, it's not there because it helps, then we can do both. We can satisfy the need and we can let people spend their time and attention on things that are important. So it may be less about removal and more about substitution, making sure that the substitution keeps the need rather than adds in extra processes. Otherwise we just sort of like risk substituting one process with another. And you take away people's structured software development process. And now they're having scrums every day and talking about their agile processes and going on agile training courses and complaining about how they're spending so much time on their agile processes that they're not actually engaging with users.
0: So Drew, I guess to make it practical and carry the take five thing, people ticking one box instead of 15, that just says, I did my my mental pre-start risk assessment today, tick the box, initial date, done and get 15 days on a page as opposed to one day on a page.
1: Yep, may in fact fill the same psychological purpose for less work.
0: Perfect. So I think practitioners here, another call out, but being very, really careful of this whole idea of form over substance. So you know, paying all this attention to the safety work and, and won't be new for our listeners, but I think this paper really carefully disconnects methodology from organizational outcome in a lot of ways inside organizations. And and so it's really important for us not to be the ones that are, you know, going around the organization screaming the importance of following these methods to create safety outcomes, you know, unless we've got some confidence in how those methods are being applied and, and what they're actually doing in our business.
1: And one more takeaway, David, I'll throw in just for our research listeners, turn up to seminars and read papers that are just totally out of your own field, because if nothing else, this paper shows how they provide useful metaphors that you can apply and transition in. And Wastel's work is a great example of using metaphors from social science. So no, not social science, from cognitive psychology and from psychoanalytics to better understand organisational rituals. Um, and I've seen similar work that uses like metaphors from software development to understand organizations. you You're just reading left field work, reading stuff from about nurses and their patients, uh, can help you just with more different ideas to bring to understand and to challenge your own assumptions about how to think about things.
0: Yeah, uh, institutional log- logics, organisational dynam- dynamics, social patterning—these things are you know, aren't just unique in the safety world and different in in other things like like IT and project management and and, and other things. So, as a genuinely transdisciplinary science, I think safety—you know—we we probably I don't know I'd probably argue sometimes Drew, you know, can get more from. From, from some papers in, in some different fields. At least that's, you know, we'll, we'll continue to do a few of them in the safety work podcast. And the last point that I was going to make, Drew, is this, you know, transitional objects are there to build capability and to build independence. That's what transitional objects are there to do. Um, and if they persist after this competence and independence is established, then they will be a compliance activity and nothing more than a compliance activity. And there's maybe another paper we can do at some point, Drew, that I stumbled across at one point called The Corruption of Role and Task which really just talks about how organizational dynamics will always corrupt intended roles and intended tasks uh, inside organizations. Great
1: takeaway, David. So the question we asked this week was, when is methodology more important than outcome? And the short answer is?
0: Well, I I guess methodology becomes more important than outcome when we're genuinely requiring a method to build capability in a particular activity within our organization. And methodology also becomes very important in in low psychological safety environments for those purposes that you mentioned earlier, Drew. So I guess in that way, methodology becomes important. Methodology doesn't seem to be important to actually generate the outcomes that the method is actually there to generate.
1: So that's it for this week. Uh, We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and hopefully somewhat useful in at least shaping the safety of thinking about work in your own organisation. As usual, you can contact us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.